Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today is our 4th of July edition. We're going to be reviewing My American Duchess by Eloisa James. Gotta be thematic. <laughs> right? I was like, whoa, it's our first holiday and we're going to celebrate together. And primarily reading, you know, English, French, her historical romances. Um, we kind of had to get a little creative to get yeah. an American independence theme in. Yeah, I mean, I guess we could have done like a Western, but yeah, we're not, I have to say, we're more into the British aristocracy than the Wild West, so. We went with what we know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so this book was written and published in 2016. And yeah, so relatively recent. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised by that, but I, I wasn't thinking it was that recent when I was reading it. Yeah, and we have, we have already reviewed a couple of Eloisa James books. So I think this is kind of nice to get really into it. And so Lane especially can get an idea of like what James is about and what she's writing about. So Right, because the other two of her books we did were part of the fairy tale series, which mm -hmm. were both very interesting, but definitively not normal romance fair right. because of the themes they were working with. Right. So it was really interesting to read a more traditional, in some ways, story from her. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very traditional. We've got a lot of romantic tropes to talk about. Um, it's, a, it's enjoyable. I really liked it. Yeah. Actually, and there's some elements, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, further in the episode, that are straight up offensive. And I just didn't care as much as I right? should have. Because yeah. it was... I ha there are some very legitimate criticisms of this book. Not just the plot, but the pacing also has some issues. Yeah. But the parts that are good are so good yeah. that I just don't care. Yeah, I, I was telling Lane that this book has everything I love about Eloisa James and everything I don't like about her, like all wrapped up in one novel. So I think I really think it's a good representation of her as an author and like why we like her, you know? Well, I think it says a lot if this book is the best and worst of her, but I'm coming out of it saying, yeah, no, that was pretty great. Yeah. I like her. Having read three of her books at this point, I am willing to commit to reading more of them. Exactly. For sure. All right. So as usual, we're going to begin with the book jacket. So the arrogant Duke of Trent intends to marry a well-bred Englishwoman. The last woman he would ever consider marrying is the adventuresome Mary Pelford, an American heiress who has infamously jilted two fiancés. But after one provocative encounter with the captivating Mary, Trent desires her more than any woman he has ever met. He is determined to have her as his wife, no matter what it takes. And Trent is a man who always gets what he wants. The problem is, Mary is already betrothed, and the former runaway bride has vowed to make it all the way to the altar. As honor clashes with irresistible passion, Trent realizes the stakes are higher than anyone could have imagined. In his battle to save Mary and win her heart, one thing becomes clear. All is fair in love and war. That is an awful description of this it's book. It's really bad. It's really bad. First of all, his intention to marry a well-bred Englishwoman is not even really stated. Not at all. Like, he just assumed he would marry a well-bred Englishwoman one day, but he'd barely given any thought about marriage until he meets her. And yeah. he's like, yeah, I'm going to meet her. Also, the primary conflict in this book is that on page one, she is engaged to his brother. Yes, that, his, his twin brother. That is the conflict. So none of that is 
at, at all alluded to here. He Nowhere. also says after one provocative encounter with the captivating Mary, he doesn't even know who she is. Yep. He doesn't know her name. Yep, he doesn't know her name. I mean, it is one captivating encounter because at the end, this is very much a romance novel where it's love at first sight. Like they have, they would one both resist that terminology and explicitly say it is not love at first sight. Of course, sight. but that's I mean that's what this is. Yes. They they meet, they have a, maybe fifteen minutes of conversation, like literally conversation, and then when it's over, he's like, "I want to marry her. I will find her and marry her." And she's like, "Oh damn, did I just get engaged to the wrong person?" Like literally, first encounter, they each want each other. Yep, and her fiance so, had proposed like an hour before. Yeah, like yeah. So, I, I just don't feel like this book jacket touches on what this book is actually about at not all, other at than all. the fact that she has a string of former suitors. Yeah, not at all. But, and I, I will say that, we'll talk about it later, but I really liked that yes, part me too. of the book. Okay, so uh, again, as usual, we have our uh, summaries, or our short summaries. Today, the number that was randomly generated for us was 34. So my summary is, twin brothers with mommy issues court the same heiress for different reasons. After two failed engagement, Mary can't be trusted to know her own mind about men, so her family and future husband conspire. That's much better book jacket than... Much more accurate yes. about the primary conflict. Yeah. Okay, here's mine. On the day Mary accepts the proposal from one man, she falls for his twin brother. Trent falls in love with her because she's hot, though he won't admit it. Amnesia. Yes. So you nailed it. Thank you. Thank Once you. again, the key plot elements are better conveyed, I think, <laughs> than they were on the jacket. Okay. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about the quality. Like uh, we've talked about it before, I really do think that Eloisa James is just a good writer in general. Like the writing is just good. Yes, but and I actually think she was the last time I pulled a yes, but. Uh huh. That first seventy-five percent needed an editor so badly. Oh, you could you There's could have too cut much lot. text, like, and, and so, without getting too spoiler heavy, because I do think this one is worth reading, and there are a lot of plot twists in a way. Um, she is an American duchess who, American heiress who has previously been engaged twice. She gets engaged to this guy at a ball, and then immediately meets the Duke of Trent, who is her fiance's brother. And that is the state of things, her mm -hmm. being engaged to one brother while flirting with another for more than half the book. Yeah. And then that situation resolves itself, and there are three or four subsequent oh, major plot points that kind of, of all get points. crammed into the last 40% of the book, including all of their hookups. So, like, the first 60% of this book has very little substance compared to the last 40%. Oh, yes. I, yes, that is so very true. She's a captivating writer. She is a good writer. Her sentence structure is great. But, like, why? Why was this book so unbalanced? Yeah, it, it was definitely unbalanced. I think I talked about it. Yeah, like, the plot seems to be split in two. There are two conflicts. Um, there's just too much crammed into the end, and the beginning is really long. Like, for example, there are actually two proposal scenes. Of yes. the same proposal from the same perspective. Yes. Right? Which was a very odd choice. I really thought it was weird. So I was like, did she write, like, was it like a writing workshop? And she wrote two different, you know, ways that it could go. And then she didn't want to take one out. I don't know. I'm I think sure. she was trying to 
describe the way memory alters once you have new information about a person? Maybe. So like the first time she's remembering the proposal, it's it's very romantic, and the second time it's as a little bit more troubling? Right, but it's not presented as her memory. It's not. You know, it's presented as these are two perspectives of this event. Yes. Anyway. All right, so let's talk about some of the tropes. This, This novel is full, full of them. So one example, uh, look, we know that she ends up with the Duke of Trent. We know that she's engaged to his brother. So I don't think that I'm spoiling anything by telling you that there is a groom switcheroo. (laughs) So yeah, this is one. I've seen this in several novels. Um, Usually they want to save her from an evil groom, but I've also seen it where the groom is like taking the fall for his brother or his cousin to like get him out of the the claws of a treasure hunter or something like that. So, but it's, it's literally like where they get married and she doesn't know who she's actually marrying until she sees the signature in the book or until she goes to kiss them or whatever. Until the veil is Until the back. veil is lifted, yes. Um, I've seen it for women too, like there's a twin sister and then like one takes the other one's place or whatever. So this one's unique-ish take on it was that they weren't trying to hide it from her until the ceremony. <laughs> well, they, they still st- were trying. There was still a groom switcheroo at the ceremony. No, there was, but they expected her to walk down the aisle and see it was the different guy. Right. But because she went selectively deaf and her veil had blinded her, she didn't realize until after she'd said her I do's. Yeah. Where their intention was for her to realize it as she was walking down the aisle. Yeah. Still garbage. Yeah. So, okay. So I mentioned this in my um, summary. I'm not going to go into great detail about it, but there is an amnesia subplot. <laughs> and it is in the last 50 pages. Yeah, it was like very, very good. <laughs> um, he, let's see. Oh, yes, he can't, one of the big conflicts is he just can't say I love you. So she's, with all of these fiancés in her wake, has this reputation of being very fickle mm-hmm. and flighty and unreliable in her feelings and sentiments. So she's too quick to love and he can't love. He, he can't love at all. Like he's, been, he's made the logical decision that he cannot be in love, right? And that a marriage founded on love is going to fail. Right. They've both decided. Yeah, which I'm not, I'm not sure exactly where he, he got this idea. Although I actually can kind of, I can see her perspective way more than his because she already has thought she was in love with three other men right. before she marries Trent. And they try to tie it into his tragic dead parents. Right, they which do. Another trope. Not only tragic dead parents, but like mean mother too. Well, they like both have tragic dead parents. They, they, are both, both they both have tragic dead parents, but in her case, I think it's less of a big deal. Like she, it hasn't traumatized her. Right, because she came from a loving home where her parents right. were profoundly in love, whereas right. his parents were, his dad was an alcoholic, and his mother was, I think, a traditional English lady. Well, his mother was somehow this, she was a wire mother, if you think about those, you know, the monkey studies, where oh. they would have, like, the soft mother, and then, like, the wire mother. She's the wire mother, but she was super nice to his twin. So, like, you know, like... Twin competition. Especially in this era when being born minutes apart, one's the Duke and the other's the Spare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like, gets no money. Like and zero. The, the mother very much instilled that sense of injustice into the yep. twin. 
Yeah. So that's in there. Let's see. Oh yes, of course, he's a duke, but he's not like. So the the first um, sentence of the book jacket is that he is the arrogant Duke of Trent. He is like so not arrogant. Like he comes home and he instead of ringing for food, he goes down to the kitchen and eats cheese and bread because he doesn't want to wake up the knife boy who's sleeping in the kitchen. And his reputation isn't as being arrogant. No. He's the opposite of a dandy. Mm -hmm. She initially mistakes him for an American because he's dressed so casually. Mm -hmm. He's run his estate well. He's respected and liked by his servants. Yeah. He's so he's super fit. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So <laughs> so we talk, we introduced our our feature. Gentleman Jackson's pump it out workout tips. This is for a duke who must distinguish himself from his twin. Because his brother is an elegant, refined... What's his name? Um, Cedric. Cedric. Cedric is very much a fop. Yes. Very lithe, very... He's society's darling. Like, he's very, um, very funny, you know. He's the one that they would invite to make sure that the table has enough people at it. He's always... He's just a great addition to any table. But physically, he's... And physically, he's like, and they're both blonde, but he's like the golden child and like tall and a wonderful dancer, very elegant, very graceful, just very much the aristocrat. I'm picturing very like Beau Brummel. Yeah. For Cedric. Yes. Whereas the Duke of Trent, whose name is Octavius Mortimer John. Yeah. Who goes, so he goes by Trent, although Mary calls him Jack. That's a plot point. We won't get into it. But he is described as burly. Like, he's not just muscular. He's not just trim. He's huge. Yeah, and Cedric is like, oh, you, you, you're not fashionable. You need to just slim down a little bit. Like, why do you want to be so bulky? And so, like, it's never really explained why, except once or twice it says that he, he rides around his estate for hours. Well, and they talk about the fact that he won't take carriages, that he just rides on normal hard right. horseback. <laughs> and so he's not just supposed to be, like, trim and in shape. He's supposed to be hulking yeah. and muscular. Yeah. It's really just not even defended at all. Not at all. Not at all. So like how how do you maintain this physique? Well, I guess ride horses all day every day. Um eat like a peasant, right? Yeah. He he talks about how he likes brown bread and cheese and beer. And he just doesn't even eat in the dining room or hold to regular meals until he has a wife. He yeah. eats, you know, sparse meals yeah. in his room. Yeah, it's never it's never explicitly stated in the text, but he does own some mines in um, Cornwall or in Wales. In Wales. Excuse me, not Cornwall. And, and um, he goes to inspect them. So maybe he actually worked on the mine a little bit and like heaved some rocks around. I don't know. Could be, but not. He's never actually described as doing any physical labor except for riding horses. Um, he does have several desks. Yeah, lots of different. He, he's very conscientious. Estate manager. So maybe like walking from desk to desk. I mean, he has a, a large house, so it probably has to go up and down stairs a lot. Which explains how you get a massive chest. Huge. <laughs> Huge. This is by far the thinnest explanation for why someone looks the way they do that I, of the ones we've read so it's, far, it's, and I love it very much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest, like, it doesn't offend me in no way, shape, or form. Am I offended by the fact that this guy is built? Well, and like... <laughs> All of him is just raw masculine power. Oh yeah, he's just absolutely like like, and again, this is very much um, the modern day perspective looking back. But he's even more masculine because he doesn't wear brass buttons. He just wears like black buttons, and he doesn't like dress up like he's very you know stoic. 
He wears black when all the other men are in color. Right, like no lace, you know, no decorations. But he doesn't gild the lily. <laughs> right. And he wears a coat that he can take on and off himself. Right, exactly. So it's looser cut than all the others so that he can punch people. Correct. <laughs> I did not mind the violence. I was like, seriously? It annoyed me a little bit, personally, but that's me. Early on, he finds out there's a man in society who goes around pinching bottoms at dances, and so yeah. he goes to his house and... He goes to his house and, like, beats him up. I, I just thought it was stupid, Lane. I really didn't like it. I thought it was fine. Plus, he met Mary for, like, five minutes the day before. But he'd already decided to marry her. De decided to marry her, and found out that she was betrothed to his brother, decided that she would be the making of his brother, so he wasn't going to interfere in their betrothal, but then he was going to go beat up this dude who... She, and she had already defended herself also. Like, he... This guy pinched her bottom, but then she, like, poked him really hard with her hat, hat pin. pin. So she had already done... And then implied that he had boils. Right. And by implied, I mean directly stated. Right. <laughs> so she had already done this great job of defending herself, but oh no, you know, Mr. Big Old Duke has got to go into his house, like, barrel his way into his house, pick him up, like, punch him around a few times, and then um, the maidservant is like, oh, thank you, Sarah, you saved me from being pinched. Anyway, I, I was not into it. Lane is super into it. I'm super in It didn't bother me. <laughs> okay. And then uh, one other thing, one other Maybe trope. that's how he stays fit. The beating up strangers. Mm-hmm. Defending women's honor. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that does add many centimeters. Yeah. To the Agreed. breadth of a man. I, you know, maybe that's why just so many people these days are not, you know, built like that. They're not, there's not enough honor to go around. Probably. Um, and then the final trope that we want to point out is, is how America is handled. It is, like, this is in every book where there's an American, but the American heiress is, she's more boisterous than the English ladies. She's more intelligent than the English ladies because she does more than just sit around and sew. Even if she's aware of social customs, she's just disinterested in them. They're more egalitarian. Yeah, and she just, she's like, why should I follow this convention, you know? Uh, there's no reason to do it. And also, they're somehow always connected with the revolution. Have you noticed this? Like, her father was in the Continental Congress. Yeah, and she, if he hadn't died so untimely, she thinks he could have been president one day. <laughs> There's one other trope, though, that I do want to talk about. Okay. And she's not a science person specifically, but she's basically a botanist. Yes. Yes, she is. She is. She's a horticulturist slash garden designer. So if you want to convey a woman's creativity and intelligence, once again, your only option is plants. Yep. Yep. Although at least in this case, she wasn't like, oh, you're just as big as pineapple or something like that, you know? Yeah, but they do have a pineapple sex scene. Huge. Oh, yeah, that was. I wasn't here for it. Yeah, I did not. was not <laughs> into it. Was not into the pineapple sex scene, guys. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. there. We'll get there. Um, but uh, the other thing I wanted to mention really briefly is, uh, did you read the afterword, like the author's note in this no. one? Okay, so she, apparently she basically got this idea and created this whole book because she went to England and learned about two things, the pineapple stove okay, and that people would rent pineapples. So she learned these two facts and she wrote a book about them. Wow. I know, right? Like, it's kind of interesting. And these, these are huge plot points, actually, in the book. They are. The pineapple stove and the renting a pineapple. So apparently pineapples were so expensive that... 
the aristocracy would rent them to be part of the centerpiece. And, you know, at the end people would eat fruit, but they would never actually eat the pineapple because they knew that it was rented. And, of course, Mary makes a gaffe and she, she does ask to eat the pineapple. Which is supposed to be both a commentary on her wealth mm -hmm. and on America versus it, Europe because right. of the accessibility of pineapples. Exactly. But I actually learned this myself recently when I was in Dublin mm -hmm. in November when they take you on the tour of Dublin Castle. Yeah. There's a discussion of dinner parties, and they talk about the pineapples. Oh, interesting. So I actually just you already knew. About I just this. learned this myself like six months ago. Yeah. So um, so keep that in mind when you're reading this book that it was basically inspired by the history of the pineapple in England. And that definitely explains why it's 450 pages. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it could have been cut down. Well, but that's lot. what I'm saying. Like you have yeah. these two plot points that you really want to incorporate. Those two plot points do not justify how long this book is. Yeah. Um, one thing I always like about Louisa James is her dialogue. I think she does a really, really good job with it. I'm nodding vigorously. Yeah, I mean, she just, it just sounds really real. And like, I've never taken out of the moment by what the characters are saying to each other. Agree. Except for the, except for the beef. <laughs> Damn it, Meg. Um, you know, it's never going to die. It's not. Actually, if this is going to be more in the sexiness, she is as explicit and great as usual, and we'll talk about this when we get to the sexiness, but there's a lot of discussion of um, her honey pot and her honey flowers oh, and her yeah. honey, and that was the one thing that every time that came on page, I was a little bit yeah. cringy. But did they, did they talk about it in the dialogue? He calls he her... He might have called it, yeah, but yeah. they they're, I did not dislike the scene. I didn't just like the scene. Yeah. I'm just saying that one word choice did sure. make me go startled very quickly. Sure, sure. All right. So he, th th their relationship, for all that I'm complaining about how slow the first 60% of the book was, is really well established. They have this really flirtatious and amazing scene on the balcony. He figures out that she's his brother's fiance and is determined to stay away from her, but they continue to sort of bump into each other at balls mm -hmm. and he's re he thinks he just now needs to find an American other than her but of course I mean he doesn't actually think this but he's very like logical Duke right you know he's one of those he's the, the trope of the logical right suitor so he's basically like okay he's trying to you know figure out what's going on like I can't have her I guess it's just that we twins are on the same wavelength he found an American to marry I should find an American to marry makes a lot of sense but right. so he's basically following her around and so they flirt shamelessly. Mm -hmm. It's great. But it kind of all comes to a head after this pineapple incident. Mm -hmm. And after Mary eats the pineapple, it ends up socially ostracizing the woman whose dinner party um, had rented the pineapple. Right. Because she, Mary's essentially called out that she couldn't really afford one. Right. And rather than allow this woman to be shamed, even though she had not treated Mary kindly following this incident, mm -hmm. she and the Duke pair up together to save this woman's reputation. Yeah. And it's they don't communicate about it beforehand, but they're very clearly on the same page and the scene's really cute. It's and they very manage to cute. flirt through it. Yeah. And and that was the moment I was like, okay, I'm totally here for these it's, characters. It's I'm sold. I'm a cute. sucker. It's, I mean it was it, they were it was just a great they are they have a great relationship. Um, like I like them together. Agreed. I really like That's, it. That is the strength of this book and it mm -hmm. really allows me to overlook all manner of sins. Yeah. Okay. Offensiveness. 
I, I, the, what is the, the most offensive thing about this book is the groom switcheroo. Right, and that, it's such a big plot point, and it was even made even worse by the fact that the justification for it really didn't make sense. The justification is terrible, terrible. It's this hand wave, well, I just did it because of this, and she goes, oh, I guess you're right, I would have reacted that way, so good thing you did it. So she's, prior to the wedding, mad at him, mad at his brother, the brother has acted, Cedric, has acted like he's going to force her into marriage mm-hmm. by blackmailing her. Mm-hmm. And he's also told her that he and his brother conspired to, like, talk about who could win her, that she was some sort of prize and that his brother's not really interested. And so she feels really disgusting and mad at both of them and very much forced into all of this. And apparently the Duke of Trent has been trying to reach her and explain the situation to her, but her, her aunt made him not. Yeah. Like, he figured we should probably talk about this, and yeah. Cedric and her aunt told her future husband that, in fact, it'd be better just to trick her into marriage. It, exactly. it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It, it involves my pet peeve, which is, if they had just talked with each other, this whole thing would have been sorted out. When they um, get in the carriage, and like you said, she accepts everything way too quickly including she'd been furious at him yep up until that moment thinking that he'd been tricking her all along Mm -hmm. and she really doesn't ask for an explanation beyond his and no yeah not at all Mm mm-hmm exactly so anyway that part really really disliked that part I really don't like it at all at all and it is a it's a really big part of the book it know? says a lot that my response to this is yeah that sucked and then i got over it yeah. because this moment was awful yeah it is a testament to how good the rest of the book and their relationship is that i will reread this one well and it's presented as being really bad too like like she is really in turmoil like emotional psychological turmoil over being forced to marry someone she doesn't want to marry and like I really, when you read that section of the book, I you really feel, you know, that like heaviness. You know what I mean? Like I really felt for her, the, and I felt really bad for her. And then the fact that it gets resolved so quickly and so inanely is really frustrating. And there's a plot twist at the end that you realize some characters had more information during this whole machination that only makes it more confusing. Yeah, because so if, confusing. If they did have the knowledge that they then, then just claimed, do this. Yeah, it's. Anyway. I know that we're being super vague and annoying. I don't want to spoil it for you guys, but it, it it only makes less sense in hindsight. Yeah. Okay. But other than that, the amnesia plot line is stupid but not offensive it's not offensive at all their relationship is really cute mm-hmm. and equal and yeah I, I have no other complaints yeah agreed that's the only offensive part it is I mean in my opinion pretty offensive but it's also not like it does not go to like the sexual assault level of, of offensiveness you I know? actually strong praise here for Eloisa James in this one with the exception of the guy who likes to like grab women's butts at balls. There is no real sexual violence that mm-hmm. I can think of. And mm-hmm. doing this podcast has honestly made me realize how common it is. Because I feel mm-hmm. like every episode I have to bring up something that is manipulative or coercive or sexually violent. Yeah. And whatever issues this book has, they do not have anything to do with sex. Yep. That's, that's very true. Everyone is consenting all the time. Yeah. And what, I like well, what, it. Whatever they do, they've consented to it, which is, which is great. Um... So the I do think that the buildup is kind of odd, and part of the, that is because they are she's betrothed to his brother, so they cannot be physically intimate at all. Like during the first 
fifty to fifty-five percent of this book, like they they can't be um, physically intimate, and so just a lot of I think to ratchet up the sexual tension, he thinks about it a lot, constantly, like all the time. Like he thinks about Mary, and then he thinks about kissing her, and he thinks about the the best. My favorite part was he, <laughs> he's thinking he's like. Um, because Cedric also will not kiss her. He won't make out with her. He'll like give her some chaste kisses, but that's it. That's all he'll do. Because he heard somewhere that she had already put out, I guess, to the other fiancés. And he wants to keep her. I think he her. just assumed. Yeah. And he wants to keep her waiting. So he thinks, I'll definitely get her to the altar because I won't, I won't have sex with her first. So she, she really wants me. <laughs> I think this is. So I think this is really funny. It was funny. Um, but anyway, so Trent is like, if I had a fiance like that, I would kiss her anywhere I could. I would even kiss her in a carriage. <laughs> I laughed out loud because he also says that to her. Yeah. Because uh, once the marriage is over, he tells her that he wants to take her to the estate with all the gardens. And so he's like, we can't consummate our marriage in a carriage. And she's like, why, why not? not? So like, there are no carriage <laughs> hookups, but they are thought about and alluded to several times. Which is, I mean, as you know, Lane and I just love them. So that was great. It was perfect. <laughs> I, I really, really liked that part, actually, because he was like, I, I would just kiss her somewhere even more scandalous than that. A carriage. But I did have to laugh at how frequently we heard about his, like, four-hour cock stand. And I'm like, isn't that the point at which you're supposed to get medical help? Yeah. Like, once, isn't that the point that, like, your Viagra has malfunctioned, yeah. see a doctor? But on the other hand, he never, he's not her fault. And he's not like, we got to have sex now because... No, no, no. That, that wasn't meant to be. Suffering that has nothing to do with the two of them yeah. or their dynamic or their relationship. But this is how frequently he's thinking about sex he's before hooking up he with her. He is constantly, like turned on all the time just from imagining Mary. Yes. Oh, something we have, this is not part of the sexy part. Her name is not M-A-R-Y Mary, it's M-E-R-R-Y, like Merry Christmas. And literally like Merry Christmas. Literally like Merry Christmas. Just throwing that out there, guys. So whenever we say Mary, we're spelling it with two R's and a Y. And an E. Mary. Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, once the sex starts, so they do, this is one of those romance novels where they don't have sex before the wedding. They do, they have one makeout. The makeout, yeah. Before the wedding. And then immediately post makeout, she gets into the confrontation with his brother where she's, he tells her that she's forced to marry him yeah. anyway. And again, if Trent had just talked to her, this all would have been straightened out, but he didn't. But he didn't. And then the next time they see each other is the wedding. They're married. Yeah. So there's only really one opportunity for them to hook up beforehand. It is seized, but aborted. Yes. And then there are several encounters. Yeah. So they go to his marriage. They go to his estate, and they basically christen the estate everywhere. Uh huh. Yeah. So. Especially out of doors. Yeah. And indoors. I mean, every, uh, everywhere, Lane. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I was going to list specific locations, and then I just realized how pointless that would You're be. You're like, actually, just, you know, imagine an estate. Imagine a, a ducal country home that has 68 rooms. 64. They, oh, excuse me, 64. Um, I'm sure that all 64 come into play at one point or the other. Plus the greenhouse. Y well, yeah, the greenhouse... Um, the bluebells. It's very good. It's it's really good. 
Eloisa James usually is explicit in an excellent way, and she really is here, and there are some really fun scenes yeah. with the two of them talking to each other through yeah. sex, which I think is my favorite part exactly. about it. Exactly. I really like I really like that part. Their conversations and like what the and I'm, we're not talking about like dirty talk. Like that's no. that's not what it is. Like it's just very it's very intimate in a in a different way than like physical intimacy. You know, like you really feel the relationship deepening. And some of that is conversations they have when they're not having sex. Yeah. But they have so much sex that when they're together it's sort of a a given yeah that both are occurring and I mean these are like young healthy creatures so she's 20 and he's 29 I think something like that so they're both in their 20s they're just like you know they're they're married and they're gonna take advantage of it you know what I mean constantly so like I do not blame them one bit me neither <laughs> and as the reader I did appreciate that the sex was used as a part of the plot yeah. To, like, build their bond, but then was also constant. Was, it, well, and it was also, like, hot. Like, a lot of times, like, the, you might use the sex to, like, build the their relationship and um, further the plot, but it's not, like... And this happens with Eloisa Jane sometimes, um, is that she falls into... So it's not, like, sexy, you know? Well, and one of my big pet peeves is uh, when authors write really long sex scenes, but it's just because a lot of the sex scenes is the character reflecting on uh, themselves yeah. or press relationships yeah. or their conflict or their guilt. This is not that. Mm -mm, no. It's just a, a several-page sex scene. Have fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, like, this is... So their relationship is... Like, they actually talk about it. Like, she wakes up in the morning, and he's... Of course, at he's working he, at the desk in their room, but he's at the desk in their room working and not in one of his other desks working because he knows as soon as she wakes up, she wants him. And so he's like, okay, back in bed. Every morning. Like, this is their relationship. The only thing I'll say... We complain a lot about fights right after sex. Mm -hmm. They have enough sex in this one that the one fight that occurs post-coitally doesn't really bother me. No, Because me it doesn't feel like sex is being used as a stand-in to cover up conflict. Yeah. And so she gets away with something that I usually find tropey and obnoxious yeah. because it's not her only excuse for doing it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And well, and I think it's, again, it, it's used to further the relationship instead of, um, yeah, because other times you'll read the book and you're like, why are they having sex? It's because it's a romance novel, so they have to put some sex in there, but really they should be fighting. Right, and this is not that. Like, they no. should be having sex and then having that talk. Right, exactly. So I was totally fine with that talk becoming exactly. more contentious. Exactly. I don't want to... I have so much more I want to say about the is he capable of love conflict, but I feel like all of it would veer into spoiler town, so I, mean, I think it, I should just refer it We're not going to talk about it in detail, but it definitely... So this book is a book that has two conflicts so there's one conflict that is resolved when they get married and then there's another so I mean I guess she had a whole half of the book to write so she had to throw another one in there but I just didn't I didn't love it and it's one of those it happens in so many romance novels where like the main conflict is he will not say I love you you know mm -hmm. so many that it, it just didn't feel like a unique part of the novel anymore it was also weird for me because the strength of this novel is their communication with one another mm. how frankly they talk about wanting each other how frankly they talk about their feelings for each other how frankly they talk about their ideas for the estate and so what this conflict about he won't say I love you comes down to for her is I must not be good enough yeah 
and all of these insecurities and doubts she has about herself and their relationship that are sort of undermined by the things he's actually telling her. Exactly. Or the things, or he doesn't say something when I feel like the character would have already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the only time he's ever reticent is in reassuring her. Yeah. And so it just feels very awkward. Yeah, it's very, it's very odd. I don't love it. But I, I, ultimately, like I said, it, there is another conflict that comes up. It's the amnesia, guys. <laughs> There's amnesia. There's amnesia. And w- the situation that generates the amnesia. So I get that it did need more. Like once the brother had seated her and they'd gotten married, there did need to be something driving the plot well, forward. There, I mean, but I just the, wish it hadn't been that. And it could totally have been that she's a, she's American. Like the, the title of the book is My American Duchess. It could have been the fact that she was American and the tenants didn't know how to react to her coming to their places. But no, they just all love her. Like, all the tenants love her. All the servants love her. When it could have been about this withdrawn man needing to cede power Mm -hmm. in his home life and understand how to live with another person and that there is a difference between consummate lust and building a life together. All of that's smooth sailing. Yeah, and I guess I, I guess my part of my issue for these books, where they the man won't say I love you, and that is like the main conflict, is I just really feel like if they want their wife to be happy, they would just lie about it. They would just say, "Yeah, I love you." I don't know. Maybe I'm just. I, I don't know. Honesty is held up as such a like paragon in yeah, these things, though. But like, just say I love you. That said, and I just want this on the record. If anyone is ever feeling bad about the things they have said to me or the way they've treated me and is of the level of this book, so like nothing very serious or Mm -hmm. relationship building, the way to fix it is absolutely with an emerald tiara. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't mind. (laughs) So future husband, if you're listening to this. Yeah. I am absolutely here for a full emerald purr. So what you're saying is he doesn't have to say I love you. He can just give you a... An emerald tiara? I would find that acceptable. Yeah. Of course, because then after he gives her the emerald tiara, he says, I love you. And then she gets a diamond ring. And a pineapple stove. So, I mean, what more can you ask for? Once again, though, I'm talking about the gifts I would want. (laughs) You don't want a pineapple stove? Specifically the tiara. Even the rest of the, whatever. And I love, he gives it to her and she like wears it through dinner. And I'm like, I would never take that sucker off. Right? That would be I would be wearing it to bed that night. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. the fact that there was no mention of the tiara during that sex scene, I'm like, you're doing you were this disappointed wrong. about that. You're yeah. doing this wrong, <laughs> right, girl? You do not take that thing off. Like never, don't let it leave your head. <laughs> it's on your head during childbirth, you know. Oh, like one hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah, you have to remember what you're doing this all for. It, <laughs> right, it's the, it's the diamonds, you guys, <laughs> and the emeralds. But overall, for all that. The central midpoint of the book has a conflict that was pretty icky. I really liked this one. It's really fun. It's a really fun book. It was a really good one to choose, I think, for the 4th of July. You know, She's really American. They talk about Boston and the Tea Party a lot. She's super, super, super American. She names her kitten George after George Washington. It's a puppy. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) She names her... Puppy. Oh, it is a puppy. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's not only is it a puppy, it's like nasty puppy. <laughs> He's everywhere. And she names him after George Washington. Highly recommend this book. <laughs> you should read it. It's really fun. Go check it out. Super fun. Um, 
I, like I said, I'm kind of on an Eloisa James kick right now, so I'm reading a lot for the podcast to diversify the content, but I would not be surprised if more of her books show up in the coming weeks. Exactly. So keep an eye out on that. As yeah. always, thank you guys so much for listening. It was really fun talking to you, and have a wonderful 4th of July. Hope it's filled with fireworks. And uh, over the holiday weekend, if you wanted to rate, review, and subscribe, we will always appreciate that. And we're actually, today, we're recording on July 1st, is the official hard launch of the podcast. So we're now on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Goodreads. So you can check us out. We're gonna, hopefully going to have some content there for you guys as well. Yeah. And um, we did receive a request to have a little bit more detail in the episode descriptions about the book as a whole. Um, so I think rather than putting that in the podcast descriptions for like technical reasons, we'll be doing that on Instagram. Yeah, so, so check it out. more information about sort of the quick synopsis of our review, go there. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Have a good one.